0: This is Mike Montero.
1: I'm Erica Hall.
0: This is Larissa Berger. We're broadcasting from Mule Design Studio in beautiful North Beach San Francisco.
1: This is Voice of Design. Please make it louder in the headphones.
2: Louder in the headphones.
0: There There we go. go. Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: Ah, now it is louder in the headphones. So much better. Yeah, yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I know that's the one struggle. I love this microphone, but it's always a struggle to make it loud enough.
1: There you go. Great. Oh, my gosh, Rupert. You're right underfoot. Rupert here. I'm sorry. The dog dog who must be in all meetings
2: is here, and we have to deal with him. I know. My dog, too. I try to keep her off my podcast. Well, I don't have one anymore, but when I did... But sometimes she would make appearances in the soundtrack.
1: <laughs> Did you, s- you stop doing your podcast?
2: Well, I didn't officially. I just haven't done one in a really long time. <laughs> like, I don't know, three years or something. <laughs> I feel like any minute I will get back to it. I miss it because I really love the medium. I just couldn't keep up. There's an, you know, a lot of email to book guests, and I just couldn't do it. Yeah. I couldn't.
0: <laughs> That's I couldn't. The- <laughs> yeah, that's very familiar. Yeah. The the hardest part of research is actually booking the interviews. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. So hello and welcome to
1: The Voice of Design. I'm Erica Hall.
0: And I'm Larissa Berger.
1: And we are coming to you as always from our secret basement headquarters in beautiful North Beach. Mm-hmm. And today we're very excited to be joined by Jen Simmons, a legend of the web. I will say and currently designer developer advocate at Mozilla.
2: Hello. Welcome to the Voice of Design. Thank you. I love being on podcasts.
1: Yeah, they're they're fun. They're fun. It's like it's a way to talk to interesting people that's weirdly less stressful than a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So why don't why don't you tell us what does uh what are you what are you doing now? What does a, a designer developer
2: advocate do? So I I imagine it's different at different companies. See, lots of times this kind of job is called a technical evangelist or a developer evangelist. And I think for a lot of companies it's about, hey, we have this software or we have this hardware and we want to encourage software developers to interface with it, use our product, our software as a service platform in in their software or to use to create apps for our hardware or whatever. At Mozilla, Mozilla makes Firefox among other products or different. We actually have a bunch of different versions of Firefox. So it's not Just about evangelizing Firefox, although it is, but it's also about evangelizing the web itself and web technology Mm -hmm. and web standards and web best practices. And how do you make a great website? What does it mean to be good at this thing? Many of us are doing making websites, which I enjoy thoroughly. And I'm involved with so I teach at conferences, I go on podcasts like this, I create blog posts, I have a YouTube channel called Layout Land. So I'm making content and putting it out in the world with the idea that 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 stuff is going to help people. It's going to help web designers and web developers understand what they're doing better and get better at it and be more awesome at it. But I'm also doing research the whole time. I'm keeping an eye on the industry. I'm, I'm watching the trends. I'm seeing what's changing. I'm seeing that you know more people than ever are frustrated with CSS and fighting about whether or not it's a programming language. So what does that mean? Like, <laughs> that's a sign that people need something. So what is it that they need? Or, oh, we're teaching CSS Grid. And I can tell from my experience and from the experience of the people that I'm teaching that it's really hard to understand how to use it unless there's a way to see it. Okay, well, let's make a dev tool. So we built a Firefox dev tool, the the CSS grid inspector that came out of keeping my finger on the pulse and knowing what's going on in the industry and seeing an opportunity and seeing a need or what CSS should be put into Firefox next. There are so many things we could add to a web browser, HTML, CSS, uh, JavaScript, other parts of web technology things that web developers and web designers want and need, but there are too many. There's like, we could have three times as many engineers and we still would have more things to do than we have people to do them. So how do we prioritize? How do we say, subgrid's really important, let's do that next. Oh, this other piece of CSS, even though we really like it, well, let's push that back and further down in the backlog and let's get to this other stuff first. So I help, I don't make those decisions, but I help lobby on behalf of the folks who I am out here talking to in order to represent all of you and to go back and say, this is what people need. I'm hearing from people. I'm seeing this trend. Um, some of which is people literally saying, I want this. And some of which is, you know, predicting what's going on and watching the trends and sort of being able to say grid's going to be huge. People are going to need a tool, even though nobody's asking for one right now, this is an important product. Um, So in, in some ways I think of myself as a lobbyist, like I don't get to vote. But I do get the lobby like crazy,
0: yeah, that's super interesting because that you know I, I feel like that really connects with how we do research as well, where we kind of see our role as the advocate for the end user, you know, and while we're working with clients and organizations that will ultimately decide what decision will get made, we are always there as like we, um, Mike often says like we work for the. We work for the user in, in, a, yeah. in a similar way, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, so what is, I think this is a great time to ask the question, like what is the state of the web right now? Because it feels like no one's really talking about it because everything that is commanding attention is one of these platforms, right? It's, it's Facebook, it's Twitter, it's YouTube, it's places where it's like, oh, all the attention has gone there people are publishing there. And I feel like nobody's really talking about websites or interested in websites. It's only like, oh, we're all just hanging out on
2: these, these platforms. I know. Remember when we used to say, hey, look at this cool new website. This is so interesting. I love how they did this or that, or they made these choices. And Talk about other people's work and compare and get ideas. Yeah, we used it, to do that. It feels like we
1: haven't been having those conversations. I mean, the closest thing we had was uh, in the last uh, few weeks when you know Slack launched their new oh, branding right. and everybody lost their collective minds. And that felt like the closest thing to, oh, here's a here's a thing that we can all talk about that's not you know, Facebook destroying democracy or something, <laughs> right?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that the, you know, when the web was still new for those of us who are making websites in the nineties and, you know, a big part of what we needed to do was explain to our potential client, like why they should have a website. What is a website? Let's register a domain name. That's the name of your company.com. Uh, people still didn't really understand why they should have email or what this thing is. And of course, those days are long gone. And so it's like, we've gone through these phases and there was a phase where, okay, we don't have to explain to people why the web's important anymore, but we all just sort of assume that we know what it is now. And then we, but it's all sort of one thing. We have, we're all building sort of similar websites like, oh, a lot of brochures or okay, brochures with blogs or, oh, blogs or, oh, and now it's just so massive. And, there's so many different kinds of sites and it's no longer like this corner in the corner of the web industry. It's like every single industry ever has a presence on the internet. Every single business ever is being transformed by people using computers to interact with that business instead of using old school ways of doing things like toll free numbers or something. And so I don't know. It's like there is no unified business anymore. There is no unified web anymore. There is no unified. It feels like there's an assumption being made by some companies where, you know, well, everyone who's a web developer, of course, works for a big VC backed startup. It's like, no, yeah. actually, I think very few web designers work for VC or web developers work for big VC backed startups. I think, I think the vast majority of websites are either like every other industry, like universities or finance or the healthcare industry having web people or it's like just lots and lots of mom and pop websites there's still tons yeah. of small businesses out there and everybody needs a website and and those things are small teams and and we don't maybe they don't get a lot of traffic but they i think there are more of those sites than there are the giant facebooks and stuff so i i don't know it's it's like we all get so enticed with growth hacking and believing that bigger is better and in order to succeed you need to have the most that we forgot the value of Of everybody else and everything else that's happening.
1: Yeah. Why do you think that is? Because we've definitely noticed that. And it feels like the whole conversation about design, and that's one of the reasons we started this podcast, we said that, oh, the whole conversation about design has been taken over by Silicon Valley. Yeah. And by high growth startups. And so many designers have gone in-house and there are very few agencies with a strong voice anymore And uh, everything about design or about web or anything is from the point of, well, of course you need to grow and you're an early stage company and everybody's looking to them for what it means to be successful. And then kind of looking at the wrong metrics, like what you said, like, oh, a lot of a lot of people don't get a lot of traffic, for example, but that doesn't mean that it's not important to, you know, exist.
2: <laughs> right. Or it doesn't, it doesn't mean that they're not a profitable, successful company yeah. that pays employees and has a sustainable business. Like I feel the tension a lot between the West coast of the U.S. and the East coast of the U.S. if you <laughs> especially compare San Francisco to New <laughs> yes. York, because it feels like, like you just said, people went in house and I'm like, yeah, people did go in house. And then you're like, oh, and people are working for these tech companies. And I'm like, no, they went in house at, all the other companies Mm -hmm. too. So what does it mean to be in-house at the New York Times versus in-house at Uber? Like it's really different. I think in some ways because I'm in New York, I have that perspective of there's multiple massive industries that are huge and have hundreds of thousands of employees at individual companies, but they're not tech companies. They're companies that use Mm -hmm. tech and have tech departments, but they're like, other companies or other, you know, they're part of other industries and such. And, and the needs of what it means to be, I don't know, a, a user researcher inside a, a web department at a journalism institution is different than what it means mm-hmm. to be a user research in a department at a VC backed startup that's looking to make an exit in the next 18 months. Like it's just, and we talk about them as if they're the same and they're not the same. And then there's the like person doing user research who's working at the 40-person shop and building out websites. And then there's the, like, there are people out there building WordPress websites for the restaurant around the corner, and they're incorporating these ideas of user-focused design mm-hmm. and thinking about users and everything they do. And I don't, yeah, I, I get frustrated when it's like, everybody's not working
1: at a VC-backed startup. Um, right, right. So something that's interesting about that is when we think about where the conversations are happening and I think a few years ago the New York Times itself was kind of leading some of the conversations about design like they were doing some really really interesting things yeah and they were sort of leading and having that perspective and then and they've always like uh like Mike Isaac's my neighbor you know he he reports on technology for the New York Times out here and so he was you know covering Uber and things like that so probably helping to bridge that gap but i feel like like the new york times as a source of information about business and about things like design hasn't really covered what's going on
2: right in that's in true. a good
1: holistic way and so that's really interesting cuz i absolutely agree with you and and we talk about the east coast west coast divide all the time because over like the entire existence of Mule, most of our clients, I would say, have been New York based. That's interesting.
2: Because when I moved to New York, almost none of my clients were ever New York clients. They were all like in San Francisco, (laughs) or Europe, like the UK. I had like clients in the UK and clients in San Francisco. And yeah, it's funny.
1: Yeah. And so we have this East Coast, West Coast conversation all the time about design and how design understands itself and about the yeah. different contributing threads of design. And the, the thing I, that we've seen is design in New York comes out of graphic design and advertising and design yeah. out here comes out of software. And so I think what happens right. is when the people out on the West Coast really want some of the like, you know, traditional graphic design flavored design, maybe they'll they'll reach East. and And we've gone to work with people Uh, Because they say, oh, we've got good graphic design here, but Mm. not necessarily interactive or systems thinking or something like that. And that's why we've gotten the jobs back there, I think, is when they needed something that was more strategic and more holistic and more, I'd say, technology aware I mean, I, this isn't to like denigrate people in New York, but it's just like I think right. there's a perspective.
2: I do think that it's it's something to realize that's a reality and something to cherish because if you really want to get a fresh perspective on what it means, for instance, to organize content and or, or information architecture and and how to deal with a massive amount of, amount of content, like go hang out with some librarians. Oh my gosh, they have so much rich depth and understanding of how to think about having masses amounts of content and make it available to people. Like forget about the web for a second and just tap into librarians and what they know. Or if you want to really understand how to tell a story and how to bring someone in and to hook them, if you're even if you're thinking about marketing or you're thinking about product stories, you're thinking about how to like engage with users. Filmmakers know something about storytelling. Mm-hmm. Journalists know something different about storytelling. Like there's so much there around so it's sort of like it's, rather than flattening everything into one industry or wishing that we could and being frustrated but that that's not the reality. It's like no let's let's just recognize that there's a lot of different dimensions on which to think about this. And one of them is the different traditions of, of, of different industries that all Mm -hmm. happen to have this technology in common. And then I also think there's a, there's a place to talk about budgets because I've seen folks, you know, like you see these debates online about, you know, which technology framework should we be building on or which design tool chain should we be using or which deployment system should we be using? And there's not ever a lot of, Well, it depends on what your budget is. Are are you building a $10,000 website, $100,000 website, or a $10 million website? Because for a $10 million website, it makes sense to spend a lot of time with deployments and standardizing things and using these sorts of systems. But for a $10,000 website, you're wasting a lot of billable hours that you don't have Mm -hmm. to build out a system that you don't need. And instead, you could keep things much simpler, and there's value in being simple it's not that you should always be simple and it's not that you should always be complex. It's that you should understand that some projects have two or three zeros and some projects have many, many more zeros. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a good point because it's like, and how much you should spend. Cause I think this is again, a conversation that was starting to happen and then got kind of lost is like the, what should a website cost? It's sort of like first you have to start from, you know, a website isn't a thing anymore a website is something that you do other core business things with and it depends on mm. what you need to do and what yeah. value that has to your business you know it just goes yeah. goes to like value pricing which is still a weird scary concept i think for a lot of people and that's how you tell what your bu- your budget is and absolutely everything follows from that is really like oh what is whatever you're trying to do what's the value of that to your business what role does it play in your business yeah. or in your organization. And then every other decision follows from that. But I think a lot of times if technology or doing things online isn't your core business and it's uncomfortable, people look for like, oh, what is the answer? What is the one right
2: way? Yeah, because it couldn't be more different. Like, oh, we're building a store or oh, we're building a customer service portal or oh, we're building a you know, like there's a completely different things. One used to be covered by physical location. One used to be covered by 1-800 number. Another used to be covered by some sort of help desk. Like we're replacing all of these different things with websites or web apps or web or, or apps or technology driven by databases. And there's not always one solution for all of those different things.
1: Where do you see the conversation happening? Because I really, I totally agree that all of these other Traditions and ways of telling stories or solving problems are very important. And yeah, I feel like they get siloed into, you know, there are are library science conferences, there are information architecture conferences that share a lot with library science conferences. There are front-end conferences, there are, you know, app conferences, there are content strategy conferences. And I feel like it's really hard to get people to. Together around, you know, just like thinking about things.
0: Yeah, really. It's like people should be going to the conference that's not in the area of what they do. Right. Where you're not just like <laughs> hanging out with everybody, like, oh, we're all Yeah. We're all doing the same thing. Yeah, like you kind of have to go out, outside of what it is that you do. Like perhaps uh interface designer should go to like a library conference and <laughs> Nonprofits should go to uh, the AWS conference <laughs> or a yeah. WordPress conference.
2: Yeah. It's so hard because we're all so overwhelmed. There's just so much information. There's so many places to learn things. There's so many things to read or watch and we're overwhelmed.
1: Yeah. And I feel like this is a conversation we've been having today about like how much we've given up in terms of finding what to pay attention to. We've given everything up to these algorithms, which yeah. don't and they're only the goal of a lot of the, the like content recommendation algorithms is engagement and growth and it isn't these human goals. Right. And so we have to bring some humanity back into like, it's, it's kind of like we're getting back to the point where we, we will need something like the original Yahoo directory again. Right.
2: Yeah. I have a feeling blogging might really come back. Somebody today asked me what, where did the blog role go? Like, that's such a good question. Like, let's, is there a place? Could we be satisfied again with human curated lists and slowing down and not trying to take in the fire hose, but valuing a smaller network and a, a more rich kind of, which is kind of the opposite of what we were just saying. Like, you should get out there and stretch yourself beyond your own circles and learn from other people who are slightly different than you or vastly different from you. But at the same time, it's like, well, I don't know. It's this weird place we've built.
0: I think it's harder to go back to, right? Because the thing that was so beautiful about Open Web, I feel like I I did a bunch of freelancing in web even before I joined Mule. And it it was always hard to convince clients like, no, you want to just use this service or no, you want to do X, Y, or Z. Because, you know, a a lot of my clients and they were all based in um, Boston and, you know, very consumed with like, things should remain decentralized, things should not, you know, I I want my privacy and, and that sort of thing. And it was just not economical to make those choices with them, because they didn't have the ability to maintain their own database and do all these things. But now we're kind of catching, I help people make that choice to say like, hey, you shouldn't host all this stuff yourself. But now all of that information is in these kind of closed gardens. And so it is, I think, really hard to extract from that because when everything was just a website, we at least had like semantic HTML and, and ways to kind of manage through structured information that is just going to be like, unless, you know, unless there's a good business reason to maintain those APIs, we kind of have lost it. So yeah, I mean, there was something to that paranoia. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I do I do. feel like the last couple of years have been a, a big reckoning with tempering the excitement we once had about the web and how cool it is and reckoning with the damage that we've done and the downside of so many choices that we've made.
0: Yeah. I also wonder about like the places that are now becoming really active online. I mean, they're all in closed environments because either they don't have the bandwidth to kind of like... Risk loading a full web page because you just don't know what it might be, or they're not—they're not even connected.
2: Yeah, it sounds so depressing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I,
1: yeah, I, it, it is. We we got to this place because I think there was this excitement about the ability to to reach a lot of people, uh, to connect with a lot of people. There were a lot of good things about it, but I think the place where everything started uh, going awry was, you know, I I think as the field of like UX design began to mature, I think there was a hyper focus on the user as the only part of the problem designers had to think about and designers didn't think about the business model. They thought, Oh, just hand me the business model And I will study people out in the world and just figure out how to coat that business model with something like sticky and enticing for them. Right. And there's been so much like we are all involved. Like there's this whole discussion about like, oh, we just need to empathize harder. And it's like, you can't empathize your way out of a bad incentive structure. Mm. Like it, like the limits of how, 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 much you can benefit anybody out in the world are set by how does your business make money? Yeah, And there are ways to design systems, you know, where the business makes money and you do something good for people out in the world. Yeah, But that has to be baked in at the very beginning.
2: Yeah, and it has to be decided. You can't just build something and expect money will come later if you built something good because good people get money. Yeah, not how it works. (laughs) Yeah. And also there's a lot to be talked about around open source and the idea of open and the idea that kind of some of the original ideas were software should always be free for everyone. No one should ever make software and then charge money from it. Everything should always be licensed so that anybody else can just read the code and copy the code and reuse the code. And I think in some ways, in some contexts, that makes a lot of sense and it made a lot of sense in that context. But when it kind of gets spun out into this idea of everyone should be creating work, It's wrong to expect to get paid. You should be working for free then there's a lot of people who came along and said, that sounds awesome. I'll collect all the value on the back of that. Yeah. And then they, yeah. they build some sort of structure, a financial structure so that they captured all of the value and turned it into usually a VC exit and walked away with millions, if not billions of dollars on the back of a lot of volunteer energy and work. And then after a decade, it was like, well, I can't just keep working my job from... You know, nine to eight at night, and then do my second shift open source contribution from eight at night to three in the morning and, and like do that for the next seven years. Like I'm burning out. I can't keep giving away all this work for free. And so then a lot of projects that were really awesome or good, or a lot of energy that people had around open source and open source communities has just turned into like two things happened. One is it was ripe for abuse. And the second is that people just burned out and there was no sustainability built into any of those projects. And what we've been left with is this sort of corporate hellscape of, (laughs) of people stealing money from other people and people like, Oh, we're left with just how do you make money? Like, Oh, you run ads or you, you get data. You, and usually, usually both at the same time, right? Like you, you pretend you're only running ads while you simultaneously spy on everybody and collect all this data. And that that's sort of the only value that was, it's like, instead of coming up with real business models that could be ethical and open, like visible, we ended up with this kind of invisible mesh of horribleness. Yeah. (laughs) And in the name of open source. And like, even I've seen companies be like, well, we can't charge money for things because charging money is wrong. It's ethically immoral. And I'm like, no, it's ethically immoral to not talk about money and to let some people, very few people, but some people run around and end up as billionaires on the back of all of these people who were really abused in the meanwhile. So, Yeah, yeah.
0: And it's interesting how long, you know, and how deeply entrenched that idea around open source is. Because when you by contrast, look at like a creative commons license, you know, that really hasn't worked. Like I'm, we're on voice of design. We're all about strong opinions. I'm going to go out, go out here and say, it just hasn't worked. I used to argue with people all the time in college about like, oh, well, you should put your music on, you know, blah, blah, blah for creative commons. It's like, no, I don't want someone to pull apart my music and remix it. And I don't want to give up that control. And that's not because that I'm a bad person or mm-hmm. that there is something unethical to having work that belongs to you. And I think that was something that was never reconciled in that way of thinking. There is there is ownership there. And it doesn't mean that it has to be to the level of IP and all kind of the hyper crazy level of that that exists in the mm-hmm. world, right? Like I think open yeah. source is trying to correct from that, which and rightfully so. But it went so extreme, you know, that even it just didn't really encourage creators to contribute. Just like you're saying people got burnt out, even, even the people who were really into it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, in the promise of creative Commons and some of that remix culture, it was very much the idea that let's let go of the copyright restrictions and we'll all come together as equals and we'll share and I'll share with you and you'll share with me and we'll all make all these creative, cool things together. And you know, without necessarily needing to email each other and ask permission and go through legal contracts. We can skip all of that by using these open licenses. I don't see as much of that kind of creativity as we thought we would. And what I end up seeing, because I wish if we had a time machine and we could, you know, go back and give our our past selves advice, those Creative Commons licenses needed to be written in a way that would have restricted the kind of abusive practices that you do see. And it would protect the creators more. So, like, oh, we'll put all these photos up on Flickr and we'll make them open source, or you know, open source is the wrong word, but we'll we'll put the a, open a, license, yeah. A very liberal Creative Common license on it. Yep. And that means someone can take my photo and write it and put use it on their blog post. That will be cool. Cool. That I would still love to do that. But what ended up happening is that somebody would take those photos and then use them to make merchandise by printing them on mm-hmm. pillows, and then sell those pillows in a massive corporate store. And it's a way to like, get around paying photographers. So instead of paying photographers to or designers to make great products, we're just going to go ahead and abuse these folks who put their work out into the world. And we're just gonna, so it's like people making a lot of money off of the back of the free work. And I see that now, like I post these videos to uh, online, and I'm putting um, their lockdown with, regular licenses, because what's happening is people are going to like scraper sites, scraper teams, or individuals who are doing scraping will go to conference videos on YouTube. They'll download the conference video. They'll go to their own YouTube channel. They'll re-upload it. They'll change the thumbnail. They'll change the title and they'll get 10 or 20 times as many views on the back of that video and make the original creator of that content pretty invisible and really end up with them repressed from the YouTube algorithms and and not be able to get value on their own work. And meanwhile, this um, scraper channel is monetizing the heck out of that. And they're getting tons of money and hundreds of thousands of views. And and I'm finding myself trying to compete with those channels. And they probably have also bought subscribers and they may be buying traffic. And they, like they're willing to do very unethical yeah. things in the process. And it's like, well, where's the license that would have stopped that? Or where's the... Like it's not, that's not a good idea. And so I don't want people downloading my videos and re uploading it to their channel and, and branding it with their brand and getting all the value off of it. That's not what the creative Commons licenses was about. If someone wants to download the YouTube video and like chop it up into pieces and to shoot a bunch of their own video and like mix their video with my video, then let's talk like email me up, ping me out. Let's talk about, I'd love for someone to do that, but that's no, one's doing that anyway. Like that's not what's happening.
1: Right. So I'm hoping, we're hoping that the backlash or the correction or however you want to characterize the next cycle that's going to follow the Great Reckoning Mm. is more around uh, value-oriented design. And that's like, we've, we've seen people talk about, you know, in addition, like value pricing, talking about value exchanges and things like that. And like you said, making it explicit yeah, And having that be a, a key part. So you can't just have design for the user, right? Because what that creates is mm. convenience and people substituting this convenience for any sort of fairness or justice in the exchange. They're saying, well, it's convenient for the end user and then something happens and somebody makes money. right? And if designers only look at that perspective, that's a very safe place for designers to be. Right. And it's very limited. It's like they don't have to get into really, really scary stuff. But if you say, okay, if you're a designer, anytime you're involved in any decisions, you have to look at who's doing the work, who's generating the value, and who's getting value in return. And you have to treat that like an equation that you have to balance through your work. You can't just go in and decorate it. You can't go in and sugarcoat it. You can't just accept it. Like if you're gonna be a designer, you have to up front know what that is and consider that part of your problem to solve is that sort of equitable like distribution and exchange of value. Yeah. And I think there was a whole conversation about side projects a couple of years ago that flared up and and it was like, oh, everybody should have a side hustle. And I think people didn't really like people in that conversation kind of ignored or glossed over. They said, Oh, just having this side project, whether it's, you know, having to have a coding project on the side. So you had something in like your GitHub to show a potential employer or being a designer doing side projects. So you had something to put in your online portfolio and people just accepted that as part of the work as opposed to, Hey, you know, you should, if you're putting value in, you should get value out. And this work, uh, shouldn't just be available for free.
2: Yeah, it really is about designing an economic system. And it might be a little tiny one for the one little yeah. thing you're working on, but you're designing an economic system. And do we want to design economic systems accidentally where certain people show up and sort of capture all the value for themselves and run off with it? Or do we want to design economic systems that deliberately so that we can make sure that workers are not getting exploited? We can make sure that that people who are contributing are also getting something back, whether that's money or not, like there are different ways for that to work, but but that it's balanced and that we're not building out these software interfaces that create incredible opportunities for exploitation of people and and what they have to contribute.
1: Yeah. And I'd say the, the most fundamental definition of design, like people love to argue about what is design is doing things with intent And so that's why I think you can't call yourself a designer and be like, whoops, I enabled exploitation. Oopsie. But it looks nice in my portfolio. Like if you call yourself a designer, your choices have to be informed and intentional.
2: Yeah. And I'm a big proponent of the side hustle on a one level because it's like okay you just got done with your code school and you want to keep going and you you know you don't want to pay tuition anymore but you need some practice mm-hmm. and you need some opportunity to put things in your portfolio and you would benefit a lot if you had some real world use cases uh but maybe you don't really have the experience yet for people to pay you and you need to and this I mean there's so many of us and I'm one of those people who I got further in my career by stepping up to the plate and doing some stuff for free at different points. But who are you doing free work for? And why are they involved, like, are you doing that for a nonprofit that you believe in? Or are you doing that for somebody who's really just taking advantage of you? Um, or are you going to get credit? Like when it, all is said and done, are, are you going to get credit for this? Or are people going to treat you badly and say, well, that didn't really count because we don't value the kind of work that you were doing and we just take it. That's why we didn't want to pay for it. Because, you know, whatever, it's not that hard. So you're, thanks, but bye.
0: Yeah. And especially for open source projects, there's such a pecking order to those. Yeah and it can get really nasty especially for people who as you say are, don't necessarily think of themselves as like being in that core group or you know it, it, there is a enforced hierarchy that emerges in place of an explicit hierarchy and and one reason that i've always thought that maybe you know all of these kind of library systems and and that sort of thing that that seem to somewhat work in hardware it's just because you go further down in the stack and there's fewer and fewer people. So you kind of get a different sort of hierarchy that emerges and then that has its own problems. But you don't end up in this like consensus driven thing. There becomes like a standard.
1: Yeah, I think the external standard is is the thing that really helps in these situations. Because mm-hmm. otherwise what we found is that things are very personality driven mm-hmm. and they like exploit people or abuse people because it's like, Oh, who in this situation is willing to fight for what, as opposed to, Oh, everybody in this community has a, a standard
2: to refer to. I think there's also, you know, understanding the value of things is, is hard. I think we, we haven't been good at that as an industry.
1: Yeah. And this goes back to the the question of what work is visible and why is that work visible? And that is another, I think, really fundamental question that we have to answer because we've, we've seen this in, uh, you know, we've been doing these gender bias workshops in the past couple of years and the most notable thing we've seen come out of this, and I know I think we've talked about some of this stuff on Twitter, is that in a lot of organizations, it's not that the individuals themselves are chauvinist, sexist, horrible, abusive people, but they're operating in a system that incentivizes and rewards certain types of work and certain types of behavior. And a lot of times what happens is that the work that the organization recognizes and values just happens to correlate with the work done by particular groups. Yeah. And the the most basic... Version of this we've seen is say you have a, a a company that makes software and you have researchers and you've got designers and you've got developers and engineers and it just so happens that the researchers are mostly women, the designers are mixed, and the engineers developers mostly men, and then what happens is by the time a product or a project or a feature makes it through, maybe the success of the result is totally dependent on the research but the research is invisible and forgotten and the people doing the research have not been going to the the meetings, you know, the later it gets. And whatever it is launches and it's recognized and all the credit goes to the people who last touched the work, who just so happen to be mostly men, who might be perfectly fine men, total feminists, but are benefiting from this completely invisible structure. And I think recognizing that and recognizing, because I think too much of the discussion around inclusion and diversity rests on individual participation and individual work. And I think once you recognize the structural thing, it's like, okay, it is incumbent on the leaders of that organization to change how they recognize work. And all of a sudden that will change the whole value system. And that will change a lot about individuals' interactions within that system.
2: I think that, like, especially in the US, but in other countries as well, there's this emphasis on individualism and individuality. And there's this cultural shift that we've gone through over the last hundred years or so, instead of really understanding ourselves as. Communal people and communities that do things together. We really, there's this, especially since the 80s, there's this emphasis on, you know, you're successful, you alone, you have a great career, you're doing good in business, you deserve money. I'm rich because I earned it. I got here by myself. This is my success.
1: Yeah. And I think as much as we talk about, like, oh, we're designing for somebody in their social context, I'd say that's another flaw with the framing of user experience design is you're centering one person's interactions with a system and you're not at all taking into account that you are designing for people in a social context and that that it's not just about thinking about having empathy for one individual at one moment in their journey, but that you are a group of people and a team working together. And again, we see this on design teams where the people who, are, who might be hiring the members of the team say, oh, we want somebody to work as part of a team, but their work is still recognized individually and so mm. those individual oh, yeah. practitioners will do the things that benefit themselves. There's no sort of team recognition. That's really, really a rare thing. Like we go in and and we work with people in organizations and to find out why they do the things they do to like help improve the culture, the collaboration or whatever. And people still talk about like, I need to do these things to get ahead. I need to be recognized. I need to be seen yeah. as an individual. And then the organization is like, Why is everybody fighting and being mean to each other? And then what they're doing is working together to design things, thinking about each individual at a time and not taking into consideration, like you said, like we're people are people are social and this is like a new idea the idea of the individual and it has to do with all of these invisible biases and support systems and interdependencies that if you benefit from personally, you're like, I'm cool as an individual. Whereas really it's because you've had all of this support around you.
2: Yeah. I mean, I've seen, you see, companies you know some of them looking at where is the web going what is what new web technology is coming out which companies advocating for that and and sometimes it seems like those choices or the, the that direction is because that's what the web needs but also there's a way in which actually in some situations it's more like no there's a lot of people advocating for these things from these particular technology companies because that's how you get a promotion inside the company where they work. And so everybody wants to be recognized as the the crea- the single the sole single creator of this particular thing that has been invented. And so we're getting, there's too many things being invented because everybody's trying to get a promotion. And I would love for us to find ways to understand how the choices we make are not just affecting individual people and individual moments, but they add up to something and to think about and predict what they're going to add up to and and then say, do we want them to add up to that? or or do we not want it to add up to that how can we how can we have better meetings at work by learning how to facilitate and creating structures in the meeting so that the meeting goes well, rather than just sort of expecting that everybody's going to show up and individually say good things or not good things. And if, well, if we had a bad meeting, it must be because the people in the team aren't very qualified. If we get new people, we'll have better meetings. It's like, well, (laughs) maybe, maybe, but also maybe you could like learn about facilitation skills, or you can learn how to think about the culture of the group and how to shape the culture of the group and how to move things along and how, and which is what the role of, you know, managers, senior managers, executives, those are the kinds of things that they're thinking about all the time in some ways what is an executive there it's a person who designs the company and makes decisions about how the company is going to work and the f- policies and the functions of right. the company in order to better oh but that's to better satisfy their their funders or their their investors or their stockholders or their you know their bottom line or whatever so yeah design designers are the people to come in and say well but what kind of what are we putting out in the world like is this yeah. the right do we want to, is this product that we're creating going to have the kind of impact in the world that we want it to? Exactly. And designers have
1: the analytic tools as part of their thinking and their work to like, look at the business, look at the people out in the world, look at the people working together, look at the cumulative impacts on society or the planet. Like, it's not a question of doing that work is too difficult. Yeah, it's just that that that's just not considered. It's not because especially with the pace of work yeah. and with the idea that, that, again, this goes back to like what's visible, what's invisible. And like, if you're in an environment where you as a designer are contributing to the production of some software, some code, then it's like, well, we've got to keep delivering and everything. And it's like, this is the way that design has taken kind of like some of the wrong lessons from Agile. And just focused on like, oh, design is just like moving quickly and creating a lot of stuff because that's visible, as opposed to let's take a moment and decide what should we be making? Why should we be making those things? Sometimes the most important work for a good outcome has no visible output. Yeah. But then businesses don't know how to measure it. You know, it's like, it's like yeah. what you're saying with open source and the design contribution, like the stuff that is measurable just counts
2: more. Sometimes the most valuable contribution that people contribute is deciding to not do things like the stuff that was on the backlog that you don't do. So it gets erased and you save the team millions of dollars of going down the wrong road. But how does that get measured? Yeah. How does it show up on your quarterly report?
0: Uh, yeah. And that must be a lot of kind of what your job is in terms of saying like, I should lobby for this because I'm not lobbying for that
2: yeah, I mean, it's it I do think that there's a way in which those artifacts end up being and it makes sense when you're new and you're trying to figure out what to do. You know you've you've just started working in the industry, and you're like, well, if I write code, then I have a website. If I draw a, a diagram, then I can send that diagram to somebody else and they can write code and then we'll have a website or app or whatever. And that's tangible and it's easy to understand. But I think the further along, we get and sometimes it's about age but sometimes it's just about how much pain you've been through <laughs> like you begin to you just begin to realize that oh gosh some of the most important things that need to happen are not at all about making diagrams and they're not at all about writing code they are about research they are about keeping your thumb on the pulse of what's going on they are about understanding the implications of the decisions that get made or about having skills to know how to intentionally create culture. So you create the culture that you want, or you moderate or facilitate the culture that you want surrounding your product instead of accidentally or creating a culture that you didn't think you were going to, or or you sit in front of Congress and pretend like you didn't realize that this was happening. But yeah, like how can we value those things more, especially if they're just a bunch of emails or a bunch of Google docs Mm -hmm. that end up getting disappeared or, you know they don't they don't stay in a git commit repo or they i don't know how do you convince the folks who think that the git commits and the design documents are are where it's at that these other things are actually really important
1: yeah i mean that, that's something we talk about here a lot and i think we've come around to the idea that that we can't just expect people to value invisible things we have to come up with a new set of tangible artifacts mm. that are that are different that hold those meanings Right. So we just you you can't have somebody just stop doing something. You've got to sort of shift their behavior in a new way and you've got to hook people onto a new thing. And I don't know if it's just like making posters that say things like propaganda you put up around your office or something. But we we do need a new set of
0: things that people can make. Looking back to like value pricing and like the value in investment guy Bogle just died and I read his little book of common sense investing and honestly, the whole thing is just a treatise on how to do less with your money. He does it through just by saying like, okay, let's try that back of the envelope calculation. Let's say you put your money here and let's say it did this well. Okay, what's the transaction cost and what's the transaction cost on this? And actually forcing people through these very simple like arithmetic subtraction (laughs) division things and and just kind of showing them how it's really just like entropy adds up Mm -hmm. and how just by staying still, you would have been better off. There's that Bertrand Russell thing about doing nothing, mm-hmm. kind of pointing to how like industrial processes, like people should just be doing fewer things because yeah. there's all this bad effect happening. And he, he makes that case in a, in a similar way, actually.
1: Oh, yeah, I should I should find that. He's yeah, he's one of my favorite philosophers.
0: Yeah. So maybe it's
1: not making other things more visible. It's making the downside of what you are doing also visible. Yeah. Making those effects.
0: Yeah, I feel like the only the only place where I've been actively encouraged to not do work outside of Mule was actually when I did a lot of pair programming. Mm -hmm. That was one of the first places where they had this was at Pivotal Labs and they had built an engineering culture that wasn't about how many lines of code you committed because everything was committed as a pair Mm -hmm. and having Less code that worked better was a clearer value of the company. Mm, so, pe- yeah. so people were not like, "Oh, I, I was, I did so well today, bro! Like, I wrote a yeah. hundred lines. You know, there was, there was, crushed it. Yeah, Crush I crushed it. There, there was none of that. And you would, you would look at the diffs and you'd be like, "Oh, wow, we only wrote thirty lines, but holy shit, was that fucking complicated! <laughs> like, yeah, we had to go in and out of abstractions and like, oh, I'm glad it, it, the plumbing works. You know, we use fewer pipes. Like, people would make those metaphors a lot, and I, I, I don't see that as really having taken over because I guess it was their special sauce a little bit. Yeah. And I think people just have so much anxiety about somebody like this
1: is what we've seen, so much fear and anxiety about being caught not being sufficiently productive.
0: And looking busy. Yeah. And I think
1: everything going on, the whole political and economic environment right now is only reinforcing that. Like people are terrified, even if they're, you know, people in good jobs who have you know, like a good list of stuff on their LinkedIn and have big networks and all of that. Those people are still terrified of proving their value. Yeah, And so I think that's a, that's a good part of it. Cause even like at Mule, like there are various times, like I I would go around and just go to people, designers working and saying like, do less work. Like I just come up to people and like yell <laughs> that at them. Be like, no, I want you to figure out how to solve this problem by doing the smallest amount of work because we'd have people come and work with us and they'd come in with this anxiety of like, oh, I've gotta be instantly productive. I've gotta like show you, I've gotta do all these iterations. I've gotta like have a lot of visible work. And I'm like, take a second, think about it and do like the laziest possible thing that solves this problem. And some people would have the worst reaction to that. They're like, I'm not a lazy person. I'm a productive person. I'm like, I don't care how productive you are. I care about achieving this outcome. I think you're a good designer. If you just sit there and think about how to solve this problem, how to create value with like the smallest amount of work on your part, like you're a winner if you do that. That's us doing our jobs for the client is helping figure out how to solve a problem, not generating a lot of stuff stuff. And that's, uh, that was, th- that would freak people out. And some people just couldn't handle it. It's just like, no, wait, no, uh, I'm not, I don't want you to think I can't do a lot of work. Like why, why did that become how we evaluate our worth as human beings? You know, like I, I think like past thinkers, would talk about like, oh, in the future, like in the the far off 21st century, people will work five hours a week and that hasn't happened. yeah And I don't think it's because people have to be working so much. I think people are just like constantly trying to look busy. Like people are bragging about how many, like, oh, I only sleep four hours a night. I only consume Soylent so I can keep coding. And it's like, what if you just sat around for two days and thought, how can I solve this problem? in the smallest number of lines of code, or how do I solve this problem by just, you know, walking around and thinking about it and not just like sitting in front of my, you know, giant screen, like working through some stuff or being connected, like being on Slack 20 hours a day. Like, I really think that if there was an explicit goal of doing less stuff, people actually could have more free time, but there's this pressure created by this anxiety.
2: Well, and I wonder too if there's if trust plays a factor into it, because I feel like in some ways the emphasis on users and user focused whatever has sort of reached the masses to a degree that wasn't true 10 years ago. And, you know, and it's been a long journey. So now that it's finally getting to like the place where everybody's talking about it, it ends up being kind of very different than what was originally intended. And everybody wants to make sure that we're focusing on on those users. So we got to have research. And then there's all this really, really bad research that people think they're on the right track because they did all this research. And, and yet it's almost like there's this, I've seen this like lack, just lack of trust to be like, well, I can't believe you because you're just saying that how are we going to know we have to have proof you need to make proof for me. I wanna see 47 design iterations because I want you to prove that you've thought Mm -hmm. of every possible combination and we're gonna actually design, we're gonna decide on the right one. We're gonna pick the right one as if every combination could possibly be drawn in 47 drawings. You know, like there's this idea that we have to get all of it so mm-hmm. that we can pick, make the right decisions. You have to prove that you've talked to enough users that we are going to be able to make the Like people, there's this insecurity in making mm-hmm. the wrong decisions, making the wrong product decisions. Like we have to make the next iPhone. We, how do we know what the next iPhone is going to be? Yeah. It's just so fear driven. And I feel like that's, it comes out in this trust of like, well, I need you to do a ton of work because otherwise, how can I trust you?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think people want, it's a craving for certainty. Yeah. Uh, And that's the standard, right? The standard is I want to be certain before I make this decision. And that's a lot of times when, when we try to help people do more qualitative stuff instead of just looking at metrics and counting things. Yeah is the idea that you have to think about like, well, can you make this decision with confidence? And that's something people do in their daily lives all the time. Like you do things and you're like, okay, I feel confident in my decision. And it's not because you've done absolutely everything, but you have a sense over time of like, oh, I have enough information. And you know, you're never going to have perfect information, but you get in these contexts in which many things can be measured and can be counted and, this, and then you end up with a standard that's too high. And so you either, yeah, you, you try to find some good proxy for certainty, which is just exhausting people. Yeah. And you don't, you don't have a conversation. I think people don't have an explicit conversation up front, which is like, oh, how will we be sufficiently confident? What is our standard of confidence? And the idea that that can change, I think, freaks people out.
2: Yeah, or they want that kind of, well, you know, how, how how are we going to define success? Well, we we have to, of course, define it with a metric. Well, what metric do we have? Well, it's not the best metric, but this is the metric we have. So, okay, well, let's measure that metric. And we'll, so then everything becomes about making that metric go up. And the whole impetus for the project in the first place and the whole, like, strategy behind why and the humanity behind it just becomes, we got to get that metric up. Let's get that metric up. Uh, If we get the metric up, we're succeeding. If we don't get, like, if you forget why the project even exists in the first place. And so nothing that's not that metric is allowed anymore. Everything has to be about that metric or we can't trust you or how do we prove, you know, we can't prove to us. It's, that's the thing that I don't like about the kind of way in which technology, the technology industry is going or the, you know, web plus Mm -hmm. software industries are going in this data-driven, metric-driven, growth hack-driven, cultural moment that we've been having for the last 5 or so years and it's in the name of users it's in mm-hmm. the name of you know good design but i don't know i miss i miss an earlier version of this industry where your gut was okay or you like the people who were inventing things, the people who really understood that why the web was valuable and kind of got there first or really understood why anything, why content strategy was valuable and got there first Mm -hmm. or why user experience was valuable and got there first, had the kind of instinct and passion that made what we said, like let's use this methodology or let's use this tool that those things worked because we sort of understood even without necessarily articulating it, what it was that we were attempting to do somehow it's tied to like valuable things being invisible. And so therefore people don't believe that they exist. And there's a, Mm -hmm. and maybe you're right that it's like, well, we need to rearticulate what's valuable. We need to find a new way to make it visible or a new methodology to, you know, coin a new term and, and keep, keep going. But it's almost like the success itself bastardizes the original thing that we were attempting to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think it's something about our brains, like statistics like any sort of data about yourself is uh is addictive and i think it's addictive Mm. to people in the world and that's why we're seeing that's why like people are doing things for the instagram likes and the fact that instagram is now changing the built environment it's changing i was reading uh, an article the other day i was in it was was some teen voguish site online something like that but it used to be the case that when people went in to get cosmetic surgery they would bring a photo of the celebrity they wanted to look like, like make me look like Mm -hmm. this movie star. Now people are bringing in their Facetune Instagram and they're like, make me look more like how I look when I'm filtered on Instagram. (laughs) Yeah, that's where we are. And so, yeah, so the fact that all of this stuff happening in software is having these real world physical effects. We have this crazy feedback loop because I think it has to do with our our socialization and our, our biology, right. The the way our our brains work that these sort of incremental data points are really, it's hard to let go of that. It's hard to let go of that. Like, you know, you look, you post something on medium and you're like, sweet, this many people read it and Oh, this many people like recommended it or shared it. And, and you get that. and, And it's tough. It's tough not to stay hooked on that and say, well, what am I going for in a more, Experiential way, because really that's how we live our lives. Is we have these experiences that aren't, for the most part, quantifiable. Like if you go out to dinner and have like a really good meal that you remember for the rest of your life as one of your best meals ever, that wasn't quantified. I mean, maybe the amount you spent was quantifiable. Like, <laughs> wow, I spent three hundred dollars on dinner, and that was insane. But wow, I will remember that meal for the rest of my life. That's how you value things. Yeah. But you know, when it comes to the business, everything's got to have a measurement.
2: Yeah. Or even right. Like, like I made these videos, they're about graphic design in the web and uh, and what's possible and thinking about the web in a different way because of new CSS and I'm excited about them and I hope they have a huge impact and I want graphic design on the web to be changed forever because I've put this work out into the world. If I could, if you know, that's the, I don't know that that will happen, but I would love that if that did happen and Okay, so how do I know that I'm succeeding? Well, yeah, metrics. I got all these graphs. I've got all these. I can actually put out a, a video called you know, nine biggest mistakes with CSS grid and I can watch and see that that does much better than the other videos. And I can, right. And so I can also tell myself, like, don't be an idiot. Don't be a linky, <laughs> a linky spammy person, like, you know, mm-hmm. follow through on the promise of the link bait title and then only do one link bait title, like every 50 videos. And then, yeah, right. But I'm still looking at the numbers. I'm still looking at my number of subscribers. I'm still looking at, you know, what does it mean if I get to this level of number of subscribers, I unlock these new features inside the YouTube toolkit and that will help me. Be able to do this job better, and um nobody's telling me to do that. I'm not being asked to be accountable in that way, but i it's easy to get obsessed about that and to why and to forget like what I want to do is really help people mm-hmm. and excite people, but it, how do I know if they're help helped? How do I know if they're excited i i don't I don't see them I don't get to hang out with them so oh, but there's numbers, I can look at these numbers and if the numbers go up, then I must be doing a good job. Um, yeah, it's tricky.
1: Yeah, we're in this place
2: that we helped create. It's scary, and like, and you layer climate change on top of that, and, no, and no, no, yeah, there's there some just charts like, and
1: graphs. Oh my gosh, there's some great like what's charts and graphs. Happening. Yeah, yeah. Is anything giving you hope or optimism? We should we should find a way to to wrap <laughs> this up
2: on a an upbeat. I mean, I do think that we are inventing a medium over the course of our lives, and that can be really fun. And we can, it's up to us to make it into what we want it to be. And we can't, you know, change everyone in the whole industry, which is what we've been talking about is sort of, quote, unquote, everyone in the quote, unquote, whole industry. (laughs) But we can make we can make decisions about what we do when we go back to work or what we do on the one project we're working on, or, you know, we can try to inspire a tiny group of people. And, write a blog post and 14 people can read it. And like, there's still so much opportunity. There's still so many ways in which we can create the world that we want to create. I do get kind of ranty at times, but I'm underneath that. I'm actually still incredibly optimistic for whatever weird reason. I think we can do it. We can articulate what it is that we want and and try to do that.
1: No, I, I think so too. I'm I'm with you. And if it gets too weird, you know, I just go and walk around in my neighborhood, (laughs) Um, talk to people out in the world. And that, that helps. Yeah. And I think finding people who are inspiring and, you know, yeah. Like who's, who's inspiring you now? Are there people doing things out there where you're like, that's really cool.
2: I tend to do this thing where I'll like buy a book and then read it while also stalking their book tour campaign stuff. So (laughs) like I'll like listen to all the podcast interviews that they've done as as part of the book tour or all the videos of the book readings they did. I don't know why it's like, I want to read, but I also want to not read. I want to get the same content in multiple ways. Um, I guess it's more of a hypertext way of consuming a book, but I've been doing that lately with Seth Godin, um, who I've known about forever. And of course, right. Seth Godin, but somehow I rediscovered him all over again. Hmm. And he put out a book called "This is Marketing," which I really love, and it's written for marketing people, but really it's not for marketing people. I mean, basically, the marketing story is, well, how do you like how do you make the metrics go up? How do you get a hundred thousand followers? And his answer is, "Make something amazing, mm-hmm. and don't worry about the rest of it. Like don't worry <laughs> about the marketing. Like don't look at your follower accounts. Yeah. just make something amazing. And he talks about smallest viable audience. like don't think about trying to reach everybody. Mm-hmm. think about the smallest viable audience and viable, of course, will like the number will matter depending on the business model that you have and what's going on. But how can you really focus on creating something great for the smallest possible audience and getting them what they actually what's helpful for them. And so I've just been consuming that I've been obsessed a little about really understanding what he's talking about. And I'm finding it incredibly helpful.
0: Oh, cool. I like that. Yeah. I feel like we a little bit buried the lead. What's going on with CSS? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs>
2: Um, there's an entire new layout system that has shipped in CSS with CSS grid and flexbox and all sorts of other things like object fit and sizing and logical properties. And it's not just grid, but there's a lot of pieces and grid is probably the biggest one. Wow. And because of it, you graphic design is totally different. It's totally different.
0: That's awesome.
2: It's so different. In fact, I dared to stand on stage last year and say that responsive web design is over and there's a new... There's a new way to think about layouts, Whoa. not talking about mobile. Awesome. but like when you're ready to design a layout and you're thinking, well, I should do a responsive web design, which means I do 12 columns and eight columns and four columns and I use this template. And Yeah, that's over. That's done. And I coined the term intrinsic web design. I don't know that it will take off, but maybe Ooh, it will. I like that. And I stood on stage and described how it is that layouts are actually so different now with these new tools than they were when... We added because the reason responsive web design was possible is because we took the float-based layouts that we were doing and we added media queries.
0: Yeah, it was a it was a hack from the beginning.
2: Yeah, it was always a hack. Yeah, that's all we
0: had. Mm -hmm.
2: And those media queries are cool, but they're not always necessary now. And the idea that you would have they're pain to maintain. (laughs) Yeah, and the idea that you would have like columns and that all the columns would squish at the same rate. Together, if you have two columns, for instance, the left column and the right column are gonna get bigger and smaller at the same amount at the same time. Like that doesn't have to happen anymore. You can have the left column get smaller much more slowly than the right column gets smaller. Or all kinds of ways you can program the the actual columns and the rows. Oh my gosh, rows. We have rows. Wow. Like you can program a grid so that it responds to the content that's there. It reacts to the content that's there. So some of the content grows and shrinks at one rate while other content grows and shrinks at another rate while other Ooh. content doesn't grow and shrink at all. It just stays the same size and all these things can happen.
0: Oh, wow. You've inspired me to play with this now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, check out my YouTube channel
2: at youtube.com slash layout land. And I'll be doing a lot of videos about intrinsic web design this year. But in the meanwhile, my talk from last year, a shorter version of it, the like 40 minute version is on that channel page that's linked to it's, it's on a different channel, but it's, I posted it on top of that page. Awesome. Um, and you can watch that video oh, for cool. the view source conference. Nice. Um, and wow. then there's all sorts of videos there. Like don't just make your content squish and grow horizontally because the, browser window is narrower or wider what if the content also squished and growed vertically because the con- the window is taller or shorter mm-hmm. mm. like you can totally do that uh not just by using a breakpoint which we've always been able to do but yep. by making the content itself like an image could be squished and made shorter or let it grow and get taller in the vertical direction that's awesome There's all kinds of crazy things. they are crazy things that are totally possible. And I think that what happened was responsive layouts was so stressful for people. And the technology using floats was so hard and annoying. And there were so many bugs, especially because IE6 was still a dominant browser. And the box model thing didn't, the box sizing border box didn't exist yet. That the whole industry kind of was like, ah, let's just use Bootstrap or some other 12 column (laughs) layout. And so now there's an entire new generation of designers who have five years of experience, who've done all this great work, and they literally have no idea how to imagine a page layout that's not based on the Bootstrap template. So that's a challenge. We have to undo that and get everyone to think about the open space that's there and thinking about using white space, using overlap. You can easily overlap things now in a way that was super impossible in the past. So we should all make websites again. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. Let's all make it personal websites and blogs and experiment and yeah. play and do graphic design and send our URLs to each other and link to each other. And we can make a blog roll. Yeah. The return of the blog roll. Set up an RSS feed. I don't oh, know. Maybe yeah. we can figure out a new, because we can't go backwards. We have to go no, forwards. Maybe we will. can figure out a new, maybe some of that stuff will get exciting again. We'll figure out some new ways to solve those problems besides oh. posting everything on Twitter.
1: Yeah. Onward. Onward into the future. Well, cool. Well, thank you so much. I think we've had so many things to think about, and I feel like we ended it on a really fantastic, exciting note about the possibilities of websites.
0: Yeah, I'm going to play with some intrinsic web design Yeah, for sure. Oh, also, you go to
2: labs.jensimmons.com, and you can see a zillion examples from the last five years, and I'll be adding a bunch more soon. Cool. You can see, like, I like to pull out twentieth, early 20th century graphic design and just kind of reinterpret it for the web just to stretch those muscles and be like well I don't know what to do besides bootstrap be like okay fine let's just copy you know Jan Chichold from 1924 and make that into something on the web oh cool
0: that's awesome I'm stoked cool (laughs) floats always really bothered me uh, floats are over. Yeah.
2: Except when, except for doing what they were originally designed to do, which is like float an image and wrap the text around it. And now yeah, you can add make CSS your webpage shapes. look
0: like a word doc.
2: Add <laughs> nice. CSS shapes, and you can make that float like the make the the image be a circle with clip path, and make the flow content flow in the shape of a circle Ooh. instead of in the shape of a rectangle. And you can use the Firefox shape path editor to help you do that. Cause it's a great tool to help you. Like all the pieces are there. We just have to use them now.
0: That all sounds fun. Yeah. Whenever I see those examples though, they remind me of like um, spelling homework where you had to uh, write a word like 50 times. And then our teacher would be like, dude in a shape. No. It's fun. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Make it like an animal. Fun shape. Yeah. Make it a fun shape. And then you'll be less sad about this homework. <laughs> but this is the only way I know how to teach you to do this thing.
2: Now I want to see a bunch of experiments from you where you make words flow in shapes.
0: Uh, but some like animals. for what design goal? You know, <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> but sometimes like it's just fun. boxes and cards. I can get into that. We're all about cards. We're all about index cards here. So I'm so sick of boxes on the web. Let's make some other. You can make we triangles now.
1: Shape. Ooh, Triangles are fun. Let's do
0: some
2: triangles.
0: Oh, okay, okay, fine. I I see you there with triangle. Okay, well, I'll think about it. I'm into it. This is awesome.
2: Yeah, and that's where like the Atlantic and the New York Times and the Vox media and like there's oh, there's yeah. places doing interesting stuff.
1: More good, cool, value-oriented, interesting, humane design for everyone that makes money in ethical ways. That is our wish. Yes. For 2019. Well, it's been so great talking to you again, Jen. This has been, wow, we talked about a lot of cool stuff and we're really excited. And we'll post the links to all the things you mentioned so people can watch your awesome videos and not steal and repost them. (laughs) Tell other people to go watch them.
2: Yes. Thanks for having me. This is great. I love doing this. Yes.
1: Fantastic. This has been
0: the voice of design yeah thanks for listening and uh send your questions you can tweet them at us at vod underscore rocks r-o-c-k-s vod rocks catch you next time all right
1: awkward sign off it's always about the awkward sign off but we have cool music that'll come afterwards so
0: (laughs) cool